this week on the Back Table Podcast. And the thing is, somebody that's hypogonadal, in the studies that looked at especially sexual function, you know, those studies haven't all been positive, right? So people that have slightly higher levels of total testosterone don't improve symptoms when you give them testosterone, right? So you may just need to kind of go up. What the threshold is isn't clear, and it's probably because it's different for everyone, but somewhere around 300, right? You know, just going from 300 to 400, people may feel much, much better. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at Backtable.com. This is Jose Ocho Silva, your host this week. Today we have a special episode. Uh, we have Dr. Rodrigo Valderrabano. Dr. Rodrigo is not a urologist. He's actually an endocrinologist that specializes in men's health. Uh, Dr. Valderrabano did his fellowship training at Stanford University Medical Center and is currently at Brigham and Women Hospital in Boston. Uh, Rodrigo and I have been friends for a long time. We went to the same high school. We were in Boston at the same time. I'm two years older. He's the cousin of a very good friend of mine. We actually did one year of, of residency together in Puerto Rico. So, Rodrigo, very excited to have you here in Backtable. Welcome to Backtable. Happy to be here and delighted about this invitation. So we'll be talking about testosterone and cancer, uh, prostate cancer more specifically. Uh, I understand that you have a, a few disclaimers you want to mention. Yeah, I have to throw them out there. So the stuff I'll be discussing today is my, my, are my personal opinions and my own interpretation of the existing data. And, and I do feel like I need to do this disclaimer because we will be talking about some controversial topics. So I am not in any way representing the Brigham and Women's Hospital or Harvard Medical School. I also am not representing the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research or the National Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation, of which I sit on committees. So that's it. Other than that, the only disclaimer is that I really enjoy talking to Ho-Chan. So happy to, to be here. So, so Rodrigo, so you went to Stanford to do the, your fellowship in endocrinology. How did this love for men's health develop? So when I was at Stanford, I started focusing on bone health. And really the first time I went to, and I always have had a, a large interest in exercise and how that can affect health and how we can do a kind of exercise interventions as treatment. And that's kind of why I got into bone health. I was at the University of Miami for a while and directed their bone clinic, but I became interested in, you know, I was starting to see all of these kind of older men, people with prostate cancer, how they weren't doing well. And so my interest there started through the bone health because that's why I was here. People were referred to me. And really, it has morphed into this kind of interest in how do we promote function, especially in older individuals, by any means, which means andrology and testosterone. It also means exercise. It also means proper nutrition. And so that's really kind of where my path intersected with men's health. And it's an area that still needs a lot of attention. And I think there's a lot of hype out there on, on people bring their own opinions to the fray a lot more than in other conditions. I feel like some people just are all on board with testosterone and some people are completely against it. No, exactly. You mentioned bone health. We as urologists, we, we treat prostate cancer and we start patients on, on Lupron or, or anti-hormonal treatment without actually, we mentioned the, the consequences, but not going to details or great follow-up in terms of what's going on with the patient's body. So let, let's talk about what testosterone means 
in the body and, and why we need it? Sure. So testosterone is the male type hormone. It is secreted in men mostly from the testicles and it's controlled by the pituitary gland. So we have hormones that go from the brain and tell the testicles kind of what to do. And then testosterone and estrogen get sensed in the brain. And so that's how we maintain our balance. Testosterone has a huge role in development, obviously, of a male phenotype, so male characteristics. But in adulthood, it is very important to maintain sexual function. It's important to maintain energy and vitality and a proper, also proper muscular strength and muscular mass. And the relationship between bone and testosterone, what is it? That's an interesting and, and maybe a more loaded question than you thought. So testosterone interacts with bone in many different ways. Testosterone gets converted into estrogen and estrogen maintains bone. That's why women after menopause will lose a bone mass. And actually, many people thought that estrogen was for women and testosterone was for men. But actually, it's also estrogen for men that controls the bone density. But all of the majority of estrogen in men it is derived from testosterone, right? So anything that affects testosterone will, in effect, then kind of move on to estrogen and then to bone. In the setting of prostate cancer, it's incredible to me that we don't pay attention to this as much as we should. You know, when women get treated with anti-hormonal agents for breast cancer, it's a huge deal. And it's really come more in, into the forefront of therapy, especially now that our treatments are getting better. And now we worry about long-term effects of our medications. So definitely testosterone is kind of indirectly the main driver of bone health in men. Obviously, if you have low testosterone and you have low muscle mass and strength, that also will, by virtue of decreased loading on bone and, and decreased uh, torsion and tension on bone, you will also kind of start losing bone over time. You mentioned low testosterone. I mean, you as an endocrinologist, what are the parameters to say that the patient has low testosterone based on symptoms, maybe a combination of both? Because I know it's always changing. Or people have their own, like you mentioned, their own opinion of what exactly is a low testosterone. So yeah, this is exactly why I had to give that disclaimer because, you know, you can get into trouble with all these. But so I think it's important to recognize a couple of things. Number one are the, the radioactive immunoassays, the regular tests that are used for testosterone, are pretty bad in terms of that they're, they're not very precise. So that's one thing. So, you, you know, if you got a blood test done on separate assays, at the, you know, if you got five blood tests and got them done on, at the same time, but on different assays, you might get different numbers. Another thing that's really important, you know, testosterone naturally goes down during the day. So um, we did a study uh, when I was at Stanford in Palo Alto, where we looked at people that had gotten a testosterone level at the VA and, and outside. And even just an hour, the take-home message is even just an hour later, testosterone could be lower by like 100 points. So it could make a real difference. So we try to use good tests. We try to use, kind of standardize it, do it early in the morning, you know, 8 to 10 in the morning. And then don't just think about the number, right? There's a lot of other things that can affect testosterone, like sex hormone binding globulin, exercise and stress can, can move it around and then it bounces back naturally. So we really want more than one test to determine whether testosterone is really low. And, you know, current guidelines agree that around 300 or maybe under 275 total testosterone is considered low. In terms of free testosterone, which we look at as well, if you directly measure free testosterone, 
you can use those numbers too. But I like to think about the numbers, you know, 75 micrograms. That's because in our group, when we looked at young men who didn't have diseases, you know, everyone was 75 or up, right, for free testosterone. So when you see low testosterone, you start thinking about it. And then you have to have symptoms. That's really the thing, right? So you need to have, especially sexual symptoms. So you ask about, you know, are people having morning or nighttime erections? You ask about a, a libido, sexual desire. And the caveat there is, you know, many things go into sexual desire, you know, state of mind, a, whether you slept or not, you know, all of these things are also important. So you really need the low number and you need symptoms to really determine whether someone's hypogonadal. And it gets dicey because in people that have obstructive sleep apnea or people that are obese can have lower numbers for the testosterone, but it doesn't mean that they are hypogonadal. It's just that their comorbidities are bringing testosterone down. So there, ideally, you would have someone lose weight and testosterone will bounce back up. Whereas someone that has an organic disease due to pituitary problems or testicular problems, you know, you really do need to think about giving testosterone. And that, that patient that you just mentioned, uh, sometimes that I see that they have elevated estrogen. I mean, is it something that, that you should start those patients in uh, aromatase inhibitors to boost the testosterone? Or it depends just on the symptoms? Like I was mentioning before, you know, most of the estrogen in the body comes from testosterone in men. And the more fat mass you have, the more aromatase you have. And so you have higher levels of estrogen. There you would want to treat the, uh, the root cause, right? You would want to try and get someone to lose weight and that could go away. There are no FDA approved indications for the use of aromatase inhibitors for men that have high estradiol levels. And so there are some case reports that, that it can help certainly, but you have to be careful about how you do it. You could also affect bone density by giving aromatase inhibitors. That's the big thing in women with breast cancer, right? That you can lose 10 to 15% of your bone mass in a year. Very, very high levels of bone loss. So because of my focus on bone, I'm less keen on using aromatase inhibitors. And we always want to at least try to get the person to lose some weight beforehand. You know, the sleep apnea also you know, improving the sleep apnea may help with testosterone levels as well, or at least it's a, at the very least, it's a good idea. Because those patients, they always say, well, I don't have the energy to lose weight. I need something now. And then they want the testosterone. I mean, I, I, was, I, I say that in my clinic, I see both. I had the, the patient that just continues doing nothing. He said that testosterone doesn't work. But the other one that really motivates themselves and they start losing weight. And, and at some point, like you said, maybe they don't need the testosterone anymore. I think the few cases of patients that once I start testosterone, they, they don't need it anymore is the one that, that lose a lot of weight. Yeah, no, that definitely does happen. I mean, testosterone is an anabolic hormone. So you, if they don't also increase their physical activity, they're going to actually gain weight with the testosterone. But you're right. There's a subset of people that have terrible symptoms and you give them testosterone and they do really well. I've had patients like that as well in my clinic. And so that's why you have to kind of personalize what you do. For these people that have obesity and sleep apnea, you could also consider using clomiphene. So clomiphene is a CIRM, a selective estrogen receptor modulator that is used in fertility. And essentially what it does is it helps increase cycling of our pituitary hormones, our gonadotropins. And some people do really, really well on the clomiphene. It's an off-label use. 
but it had, there are studies that have taken it out to two to three years and it's very safe. So without kind of the risk factors that we deal with when we uh, treat with testosterone. And there's, honestly, there's less bother in the prescription and it's not a controlled substance and some people do excellent on it. So yeah, recently, I mean, I think there's like a shortage of Clomifed, Aclomid, and it's been a challenge for patients to continue their treatments. But we're using compounding pharmacies, and definitely that, that has helped. But the regular pharmacies, we're, for some reason, they, they, they don't have it, uh, at least in, this, in the Orlando area. So, Rodrigo, so, so in terms of, of treatment options for testosterone, uh, I find myself always I mean, giving injections at the end of the day because that's mostly what, what the insurance covers. Uh, what, what's your preference? Yeah, you know, actually my preference, so the injections are totally reasonable, but my preferences are actually the gels. They're more natural. They do in the body what it's supposed to do. They have the, the boost in the morning and then they dawn at night, yeah. That's right. So I do it because you get less pituitary suppression. You know, if somebody's on injections for a long time, they can have androgen withdrawal when you try to wean them off. So with the gels, you get kind of an even level of testosterone. You don't get these, these peaks and valleys. And a lot of, you know, and most people do well on it. The thing to consider with the gels is that if you have small kids or, you know, if you have a female spouse, it can get dicey if they get the gel on them. So you're supposed to wait, you know, it really dries within 15 minutes, but there is some trace gel there for several hours after. So if you have small kids and they're jumping on you and they get some of it on them, things can get hairy, literally. The injections are very good too. So I generally, my second go-to are usually the injections. But what I find is sometimes at the tail end, so if you're doing, two, for example, 200 milligrams every two weeks, at the tail end, some people are kind of running out and then they feel really fatigued at the tail end. But what you can do then is instead of doing 200 every two weeks, you could do 100 every week and that's good. Some other forms, there's patches as well. I've seen that work for some people, but they do cause a lot of dermatitis and the patch falls off and then that's the problem. But th that's available. Yeah, especially patients that sweat a lot. It definitely if, if, if falls. Yeah. And they're going to the gym, yeah. Definitely in the Orlando area, it's a bigger problem than in the Boston area. But yeah, but those are good. You know, you have the, uh, I don't know if you, if you, do, if you implant the pellets. The, some people really like those. No, I'm not doing it in the clinic. Uh, I started doing it. It was a mess trying to get the insurance to cover it. Just, it, it took two more resources of the office. So I just stopped doing it. Yeah, you know, people like it while it's on, but it, and then they can get some scar tissue. And, you know, I've never seen not someone that really stays on it for years and years. They'll use it for a while and then they'll stop. And then there's a pill now that's a testosterone undecaonate pill. That one gets, it's hard to cover because it's newer and more expensive. And that also in the clinical trials, it did, it kind of increased blood pressure a little bit. So I sometimes hesitate to use those in people that have high blood pressure. And there's one that, I mean, it's, it's also, I think it's new or is the intranasal one. Have you seen that one? That is like, like four or five times. I mean, I think it's like three or four times a day. I, I use the, the intranasal shot. Uh, supposedly in terms of the access, it doesn't have any major side effect. That's how they sell it because it is short acting. But again, but I, I haven't had any people. I think I tried twice for patients uh, and the insurance didn't cover it. So, Yeah, I haven't been able to access that myself either. I'm not as familiar with the data on those, so I can't comment on the effectiveness of it, but I know it is out there. So Rodrigo, let, let's talk about testosterone and the prostate. Prior to going to prostate cancer, let, let's talk about just BPH, uh, benign prostate hyperplasia. 
Because we all, we always tell the patient, hey, you might start having more symptoms when you start testosterone in terms of patient that pees fine and, and then he might see some some URI symptoms uh, because of growth. What, what does the literature show in terms of, of the, pro the effect of the prostate? Yeah, that's a great question. The thought process there is changing some. A lot of these retrospective studies, right, these studies looking at existing data as opposed to a planned clinical trial. A lot of these retrospective studies of people with benign prostatic hyperplasia found that associations with people that were taking testosterone, right? So the thought process there was, oh, the testosterone is making your prostate bigger. But actually now we have some pretty good data looking at people that have benign, are hypogonadal, so have low testosterone, you know, between some, essentially some, some criteria, and then doing biopsies before and after testosterone treatment. And actually, what people have found is that inflammation in the prostate through biopsies can actually improve when you treat with testosterone. So it may not necessarily, and you know, and this is not set, there's a lot of debate around this, but actually there have been some studies looking at lower urinary tract symptoms, LUTs, and LUTs gets better in a lot of people after testosterone treatment. And then these biopsy studies actually saw reductions in inflammation in hypogonadal men treated with testosterone. And I think that's the key. If you have somebody that has benign prostatic hyperplasia, has low testosterone and is hypogonadal, then this is somebody that actually may benefit from testosterone therapy. And I've seen it in my clinic, you know, people with significant lower urinary tract symptoms, it gets better when you treat them if they're clearly hypogonadal. So we need more randomized clinical trials in this space, but I think that people are coming around to thinking, you know, maybe there's nuance to it. It isn't a blanket statement you can just say for everyone. Awesome. No, no, that, that, that's great information. Uh, and Rodrigo, so when a patient goes to the to your clinic, they have hypogonadism symptoms. What tests do you order? So again, very important. You know, so generally, I'm the testosterone guy, right? So I'll do a little bit more extensive workup. Generally, when they come to me, they've they've already had some testosterone level. So I generally will look at what they've had done. A lot of the times, the testosterone levels get drawn in, in the afternoon, especially in you know in younger men. They, when they go to clinics after work. So I will order a testosterone, total testosterone and free testosterone measured by mass spectrometry, liquid chromatography. That's still not perfect, but it's better than radioactive immunoassay. You can order sex hormone binding globulin. A lot of older men have a lower levels of sex hormone binding globulin, and that will bring your total testosterone down and make it look like you have low total testosterone but then you get the free testosterone and that's normal, right? So a sex hormone binding globulin carries testosterone and the total testosterone level is a additive of testosterone that's bound to sex hormone binding globulin and free testosterone. So if you find a low total testosterone, but a low sex hormone binding globulin and a normal free testosterone, this is a person that may not have hypogonadism. And then to confirm, what you want to do is look at the LH and FSH, the luteinizing hormone and follicular stimulating hormone. And there, it, you know, in people that have kind of secondary hypogonadism, that might be normal or it might be slightly low. And in people that have testicular problems, that should be high. And one thing that never fails to surprise me are people that have had mumps in childhood there's almost a 50%, if you go out long enough, there's almost a 50% of people that eventually get low testosterone levels after having mumps, right? Mumps or chitis. And so they don't always remember having testicular swelling in childhood, 
But I think it's, you kind of get a hit. And then when you're young and healthy, your testicles are able to overcome the hit and kind of make up for it. And then as you get older and things, you know, you get less vascular supply, things start changing. And, and then eventually the testicles can't keep up and you make low testosterone. So there you, you would see high LH and FSH. And that, for me, that's a slam dunk, right? Because if the end organ isn't working, those are the easiest cases. Then you, you definitely will treat with testosterone. Sometimes people get hit too. Trauma to the testicles could do it. And then you have LA, high LH and FSH. I had a guy who practiced Krav Maga. And I guess he had an overzealous instructor that kicked him in the testicles a couple times. <laughs> and then he actually <laughs> had hypogonadism. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. So FSH and LH, I mean, you order all the time. It's just, it depends on the patient. If they're younger, no, I would I would order it in kind of the full workup. I would before deciding on treatment, I would do it for sure. It also gives you a baseline, and then if you end up suppressing FSH and LH later, you know, so if it's normal, and then let's say after a year of testosterone, the person wants to stop or wean off, you can get LH and FSH again, and if they're very suppressed, they're zero or they're almost you know undetectable or very low, then you know that they're very suppressed. You have to take it easy. And you may want to consider doing something like weaning off the testosterone, but also giving Clomid at the same time to kind of boost that, that axis back up. And for follow-up, do you always uh, do FSH or, or just at the, if you want to wean them off? It's case by case. I, I wouldn't just do FSH, LH all the time in terms of a monitoring. But if I want to know whether I have suppressed them or sometimes when people come and they've been on testosterone for years, and I want to see like, you know, where they're at, then I would definitely get that. And patients that want to keep fertility, I mean, what are the, are you doing growth hormone in those patients or? Do you mean HCG? You mean HCG, sorry, yeah. Yeah. So essentially human chorionic gonadotropin HCG is essentially a, a mimic of LH, right? So you would do that when the pituitary, you know, so it's a way to bypass the pituitary gland. Typically, people that have received testosterone, you can get away with using clomiphen and restarting the axis. And then if that doesn't work, you could try LH, you know, HCG. And then if that doesn't work, then, then it's up to you guys in the urology world to do the testicular biopsies and see if they can find some, retrieve some sperm directly. Uh, but those are rough. They, you know, they are, they're associated with very, very high rates of hypogonadism if they aren't hypogonadal. So... So Rodrigo, let's go to the more controversial part of our podcast, and it's the work that you have done in testosterone with, um, and prostate cancer. So you were part of a, of a group of them. You published the paper on patients that are prostate cancer survivors, low testosterone, very symptomatic, and you started treatment. That's right. So talk to us about the inclusion criteria. How, how did it come up? Sure. So this is work that started before I, you know, so I've only been at the Brigham now for about a year and a half, almost two years. And this work was started by my principal investigator and kind of the head of, of our men's health division, Dr. Shalander Basin, who's a, you know, a guru in this space and uh, has, I mean, his papers in the 1990s were the ones that showed us that testosterone was actually anabolic to muscle. Before that, everybody was sure that it wasn't, right? So really transformative work. So Really what we're hitting at here, Jorge, is that there is a lot of data out there that retrospective and or case reports and case studies showing that people that have had prostate cancer do well with testosterone therapy 
after complete removal and treatment of the prostate cancer, right? So it's a really important area. You know, about 50% of men uh, that have radical prostatectomy will, will, will end up having hypogonadism, even with nerve sparing uh, surgery. It's not completely clear why this happens, but it must have something to do with, you know, the affected vasculature or fibrosis or other things that happen after surgery that affect the testicles. And essentially what we have to differentiate what you might want to do person by person with somebody in clinic versus what we're trying to do, which is let's create a trial that we can use to kind of give wide ranging advice, right? And so this is the first trial, randomized double blind placebo controlled trial to give testosterone back to prostate cancer survivors. And we're being very careful to pick people that had low grade and very low disease recurrence, right? You know, so, so we're being very uh, careful there. So essentially we're doing a, you know, Gleason score of three plus four, um, no extracapsular invasion or any kind of lymph node, positive lymph nodes or anything like that. These people could not have had a PSA greater than 20 before surgery. Okay. We changed that. Initially we had it in PSA no greater than 10. 10. Okay. Um, but actually, you know, every, everything's been so good that we actually changed it to under 20 and people have still done well. And then it, we are treating people that are at least two years out and have had a completely negative PSA for the past two years. Right. So these are really the people that were low grade of recurrence, We've treated with radical prostatectomy, and then, you know, there's no sign that anything's come back. And these were people that were not on a Lupron or any other kind of hormonal therapies. So really low, low risk of recurrence. We've now done close to 70 or 80 people, and we haven't seen any kind of safety signal whatsoever in, in the entire trial. And, and what's the regimen? Are you using gel, injections? No, we're using injections. It's a, it's a really difficult study to recruit for and retain people because they have to drive into Boston every week. But then we're doing it here and we're doing it at Johns Hopkins as well. The PI there is Arthur Burnett, who's kind of a guru in this space as well. The regimen is 100 milligrams of testosterone every week and they come and get their injections. Yeah. And that's for 16 weeks, I believe. And how often do you do the, the labs? So we have safety PSA. So we have PSAs at regular time points, essentially every two to four weeks, and it's looking great so far. So that's our regimen, how we're doing it. But, uh, you know, whether that's really necessary in clinical practice later on, I, I don't know, um, you know, but we're started, we're just kind of making sure that we, if we do get a hit and we see biochemical recurrence of prostate cancer, we want to really catch it very early. So that's why we're doing it so fast. Yeah, I have a few patients in my, my, my practice and my clinic. Uh, I usually follow up these patients every six months, just general uh, uh, hypogonadism. But in these patients, uh, the first ones that I started, I were doing every, every three months. I mean, they're all doing good. I, I, I haven't had a patient with recurrence. I have a few that are after radiation. Because definitely, I mean, I had a patient that, hey, uh, that he, it wasn't worth living. He, f he felt that bad. Yeah. So, so I, I, I felt obligated to, to do something. It was just, I think he, he, he continued, his testosterone was in the hundreds or low hundreds and, and he's feeling great. Excellent. Well, that's so great to hear. Yeah. We, we, we discussed the, the outcome. I mean, he, he knew what to expect. We knew that, that there's no, no data out there or, or, or not that much data. And we're, we're doing it because, yeah, the, the, yeah the, the, the patients need it. So I think at the end of this trial, if everything goes as we hypothesized, I think we will be able to say, and for anyone who wants to see it, the protocol and of the trial was published in Andrology in January 
But I think what we will be able to say at the end of this trial, if everything goes kind of like it's looking like, is that for people with a, a low risk of recurrence who have, you know, undetectable PSA or very low PSA for, for many years after surgery, we'll be able to offer it. If you're hypogonadal and you're feeling terrible, which about half of people are, then it's safe and effective to give it, right? So our outcomes are our sexual health and also physical health. So we're looking at VO2 max, other, you know, uh, strength measures and aerobic capacity measures. So testosterone has worked in every other trial. I don't see why it wouldn't work here or at most, I shouldn't say every other trial, but most other trials looking at people that we now consider hypogonadal, people have had improvements with testosterone replacement therapy. And so, and then someone like your patient, if they're higher risk, you know, you have to kind of uh, weigh the pros and cons like everything in medicine, right? And if, if they totally, you know, are, are just feeling terrible and, and, you know, life isn't worth living and you can make them feel better, then, I mean, that's, that's a, a great outcome, you know, as long as they're aware of the risks. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, so the fear will be that that patient has a full-blow recurrence. That's right. And I guess, I mean, if it's going to recur, it's going to recur no matter what. It's just depending on what time, when, when it's going to, and, and definitely testosterone will push you that is sooner, sooner than, uh, than later. Oh, sure. I mean, let's, let's not beat around the bush. If you have with, with this low recurrence rate and the low PSA, we're just trying to make sure that the person is quote unquote cured, right? If you're cured, testosterone isn't going to do anything bad, right? If you know that, uh, there are some prostatic cancer cells hanging around, if a person really hasn't suppressed PSA or, you know, if it, if, you know, if there was extra capsular invasion and there, and there were lymph nodes positive, you know, there are cells around there, testosterone will promote prostate cancer growth. Absolutely. The question is if, you know, depending on the, the person's expected quality of life, the person's expected lifespan, depending on, you know, the degree of disease, is it worth it to them to take that risk? All right. And so that's why when we do this kind of thing, we have to be really careful to monitor people closely to make sure that, you know, if this some, is someone that's going to recur quickly, we need to catch them quickly. And that's, you know, so you, so you, you put the safety net there and uh, you try to help people as, as much as you can. I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's what we're all trying to do in healthcare, right? Yeah. And for other symptoms, like, like urine incontinence, erectile dysfunction, more people are treating those patients sooner. Before we, we just like testosterone, we waited. I uh, just to make sure that the patient didn't have any recurrence, and then we 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 would talk about the the inflatable penile implant, uh, or, or or a wrestling or or, or a artificial sphincter for to correct the incontinence. But I think that trend now is doing it sooner. Definitely not 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 three months after, but before the year, six months. If that patient has just like you said, low risk cancer, uh, very low risk of of metastatic disease, then just treat him. Yeah, you know, it's it's the Again, it's the difference between, you know, giving wide-ranging advice from the results of a clinical trial and personalizing medicine to your patient and, and their desires and their tolerance for risk, right? So somebody that you don't wait at least a year to see the PSA suppressed, it would certainly be somebody who is potentially at higher risk and we just don't know about it, right? But I could see someone with a recent surgery that has a totally undetectable or extremely low PSA and, you know, they had a very low risk cancer to begin with. You know, I mean, that's somebody you could be a little bit braver, follow them up closely. And if they're doing fantastic then, and they're aware of the risks, I, I don't see 
you know, we do, we do this kind of stuff all the time in other aspects of health. You know, when I was at the University of Miami, I really learned a lot from the oncologists. You know, the oncologists and, and when they treat, especially people that are involved in, you know, like renal cell carcinoma, just really aggressive types of cancer, they are really open to doing other things to help patients, right? I, I remember treating somebody for thyroid illness and I said, no, you know, we're going to, and I told the oncologist, we're going to give him thyroid medication and then we're going to titrate it every three months. Uh, and in about six months to a year, he'll be fine. And the oncologist called me back up and said, hey man, you know, this guy has a life expectancy of six months. Uh, what and you're telling me you're going to treat him, you know, in a year? It's going to be a year till he feels yeah. good. Yeah. Wow. You know, that opens your eyes, right? It's yeah. Sometimes say uh, you have to be a little bit more aggressive and, and be out of your comfort zone for people that, you know, are just feeling terrible. You know, their quality of life is just terrible. Exactly. And, and what are, in terms of, of your, the research that you're doing right now, I mean, or your protocol, uh, at some point you will start doing it, move it every year. I mean, instead of waiting two years after the, the PSA, you think it's going to move to a year? Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll have to see how certainly, you know, this is not a large trial with thousands of people. I think we're shooting for about 120 people. So it'll be, it'll be solid and we'll have power to detect a difference in our outcomes. I think that this, once this trial comes out, this will be the first randomized clinical trial to show that it's safe and effective. And so if, you know, if everything goes to plan, of course, and I think that will spark a conversation where then the conversation will be, should we be thinking of doing this even sooner, right? Should we be doing this in everybody? So I think it'll be some time before we start changing. This is kind of the initial step or the next logical step. And then once that conversation is, is then underway, I think we'll have other, maybe other studies coming out, people that will be brave and, and will be trying to do this as well. And, and what's the, the timeline for your, for your research? Five years? Uh, what, when, when will you say hey, it's safe? Yeah. So like I said, um, I have to say the, the end point of our trial isn't safety, it's uh, effectiveness, right, in sexual function and physical function. But when you treat over 100 people and, and if nothing happens, then that's more reassuring than not having any data for sure, right? The timeline, you know, COVID really threw a wrench into our recruitment. You know, Boston was completely shut down for almost six months to almost a year. And then people were very um, eh, reluctant to come in. So I think the trial will be open for about another year. Johns Hopkins has recently gone underway and they're recruiting people as well at a nice eh, pace. So hopefully in about a year's time, we'll finish recruitment, which will mean, you know, maybe another six months eh, for the trial results. Uh, at least the main results to come out. So give it like two years, maybe, until we actually publish the data. Cool. Yeah. And then after that, you know, I'll be back and we can talk about then how to be even more aggressive. <laughs> no, yeah, because I mean, patients want it. Patients want it. And, but, but it gets trickier because uh, right now there's a, a movement within the urology part uh, of this low-risk cancer doing more active surveillance. So what happens in those patients that they still have active cancer but they have symptoms of low testosterone, and what are you going to do with it? Yeah, that's really tough. It, it becomes more tricky, yeah. You know, but honestly, so the other thing about this, the other part of this is that, you know, our thinking has changed. You know, so originally the idea behind, you know, don't treat anyone with prostate cancer be, uh, with testosterone, that, that concept came from data that shows that prostate cancer is very obviously stimulated by testosterone. 
So that's one piece of data, right? And then people that are frankly hypogonadal or people that are treated with Lupron and other antiandrogen agents do better after surgery, after especially metastatic disease. So those are the two extremes, right? And so people thought, oh, obviously, you know, testosterone is bad. Now, the reality is the level that you need to turn on the androgen receptor, the level of testosterone that you need is very low, right? So if you have a testosterone of 200 versus a testosterone of 400 total testosterone, you're not really changing the landscape in terms of whether the testosterone, any androgen will be stimulating prostate cancer cells. If you have zero versus 400, that's a big difference. So people that, even people that are under active surveillance, you know, if they have a lowish testosterone of, let's say, 250, 200, 250, and you boosted them up gently, you wouldn't necessarily be uh, compromising them, right? You wouldn't necessarily be overstimulating it. Hey, listen, if you, if you go up to 1,000, right, and you're treating and, and you're not being careful, and you're, then obviously that's not the best idea, right? If you already have testosterone on board, Going up a little bit doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to stimulate any kind of dormant cells more. Yeah, because also those patients that are hypogonadism, you start on testosterone, PSA starts increasing, then you do the work for elevated PSA, uh, you find cancer, and then you have to tell them, hey, we need to stop testosterone. Uh, those patients are uh, don't don't like it. Don't like to hear. I mean, they don't like to hear that they have cancer, and and more, and they don't have to like to hear that you're not gonna you're gonna stop giving them testosterone. So, so it, yeah, it becomes trickier. But hopefully, I mean, I, I always tell them, hey, continue, continue testosterone to the treatment. Let's wait for the biopsy and go from there. Because you don't, you don't want to stop them just because of the elevated PSA, or at least in my opinion. Because if they're feeling good, I don't want them to go back. And that's what the patient doesn't want. They don't want feeling terrible like before. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it all depends, right? If if it's if it ends up being something very low grade and and uh, obviously if it's something that has it, you know, the, where you're seeing lymph nodes and you're seeing metastasis, uh, you could really accelerate it uh, a critical period where, where, where they need to be treated. So I don't know, that's where you have to individualize it. We also have to look at, you know, why people are on testosterone and if there are alternative therapies that could help, you know, or if, you know, testosterone is not necessarily the only answer. And if people aren't feeling well and they have low testosterone because they're obese and they have sleep apnea, then let's treat those and see if they get better. You know, you have to, you have to work with, I mean, I don't like to negotiate what, you know, you're, you're either... You know, you you are either deserving of treatment or you're not, and or you know you have the criteria or you don't for testosterone treatment. But when there's sometimes when people are in the kind of in the gray zone and you're not sure, I say, listen, work with me and I'll work with you. You know, start at least get on some programs, start losing weight, and start being active, and then and then let's let's try low dose and and, and see how it goes. You know, it, so it it really has to be individualized. Uh, and when you say low dose, I mean, what, what do you mean if it's, uh, let's say with the gel, start with one pump, for example? Yeah. So you could do like a 1.6% gel. You could do one pump. You know, so the important thing is in the kind of initial gel trials, right, about 10% of people had a terrible response. 10% of people had an, a ridiculously high response, right? And then everybody else was kind of in the middle. So you, you may get a really, you know, just with one pump, you may be getting a pretty good dose effect. And the thing is, somebody that's hypogonadal, in the studies that looked at especially sexual function, 
you know, those studies haven't all been positive, right? So people that have slightly higher levels of total testosterone don't improve symptoms when you give them testosterone, right? So you may just need to kind of go up the threshold. What the threshold is isn't clear, and it's probably because it's different for everyone, but somewhere around 300, right? You know, just going from 300 to 400, people may feel much, much better as opposed to going from 300 or 200 to 1,000. You know, you don't have to go up that high to see improvement, right? So you use gels or patches that don't have the spike. Certainly, uh, remember, when we do testosterone injections, you're going to have 1,000, right? If you get it two days after, you're going to get 1,000, 1,200 of total testosterone. So that would not be a great idea. Uh, when you're treating somebody that has that you're surveil, you know that that you're that's under active surveillance for for prostate cancer. So when I say low dose, you know you may want to do something like a gel or a patch. Start at a lower dose, see how it goes. Look at the PSA. If the PSA jumps up, then obviously that's he's not a, that person isn't a good candidate for it. Great, Rodrigo, you want to add something else? I think it, it was great. Yeah, no, I think. Uh, like everything, we, you know, medicine, I think everybody should just keep an open mind. Um, we're not saying that testosterone is the cure-all. Uh, certainly, anyone that gets a lot of testosterone is going to feel energized and hyped up, but that doesn't mean it's good for them, right? Um, so I'm, I, I don't want it to come across like, like we're just trying to sell testosterone no matter what or give testosterone no matter what. But certainly, we should be, you know, that there's enough data out there that it's potentially safe. We're doing this trial, which will come out soon, and that'll be some some good baseline data for everybody to, to base on. You know, we got to give these guys a chance. You know, the, a lot of these older men after the prostate cancer, they feel absolutely terrible, right? So I'm not saying we give testosterone to everybody. I'm actually quite conservative in my own clinic, but we got to have an open mind and, and give everybody a chance. Exactly. Well, Rodrigo, thanks for being here in Back Table with us. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk again. Yeah, man. No, thanks for having me. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.